0: Welcome to Battleground coming to you this week from Europe, where I'll be based for the next three weeks ahead of an important conference coming up in London at the start of November. We'll be bringing you a lot more about that event closer to the time. Tonight I want to focus on Australia and the fallout from last week's referendum, a watershed moment for Aboriginal policy which will send shockwaves which will reverberate for many years to come. With the Indigenous voice to Parliament now sitting in the dustbin of failed ideas, Dr Stephen Chivora will be joining me in an extended conversation to assess assess the damage this has caused to our social fabric and the way forward from here. We'll also be discussing the troubling alliance between activists in Australia and the rampaging murderous terrorists who committed unspeakable acts of atrocity on men, women and babies in southern Israel almost two weeks ago. That's coming up on Battleground, which streams around the world from the studios of ADH TV in Sydney every week at 8pm Australian Eastern Standard Time. You can watch it on the web on www.adh.tv or better still download the app for the premium viewing experience on your smartphone or smart TV. The results of last week's referendum was an extraordinary moment for Australia. The nation voted by 60% to 40% to reject the ill-conceived indigenous voice to parliament, which would have divided the country on racial grounds. In doing so, they were rejecting the black armband view of history. It was sending a message to the elite that they're sick of the national guilt trip. They've had enough of the self-flagellating national apologies speeches, welcomes to country and other politically correct performances. It was a call to let bygones be bygones so that we can live together as fellow citizens with exactly the same rights and responsibilities as every other. Australians recognise that the pursuit of historical grievances only cements divisions. It's the same poor thinking that's led to the trouble in Palestine right now and there's no future in it. Above all, it was a rejection of the insufferable arrogance of the anointed and their presumption of superior wisdom and authority. The no vote, in fact, amounts to an insurrection against the progressive establishment. That much is evident from the distribution of votes between metropolitan and regional seats. As a rule of thumb, the higher the support for the referendum, the harder it is going to be to find a tradie. This is why, in the seat of Flynn, which is in central Queensland, around Gladstone, almost one in five people have a trade certificate. In the seat of Melbourne on the other hand, that's Adam Bant's seat in inner city Melbourne, one in 20 have a trade certificate. The latest counting shows that in Melbourne, 84, uh, 78% sorry, of people voted yes. In Flynn, 84% voted no. That's not to say all tradies voted yes or no or, indeed, all Aboriginal people voted yes or no, we know that in both cases the vote was divided. Many areas with high Aboriginal populations voted no. At its heart, The Voice was an intellectual project framed around an abstract idea of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders rather than based on any practical measures to improve their lives. The intelligentsia, I think, is going to find it impossible to concede anything more than a technical defeat on, on one constitutional change but in fact it's far more than that the indigenous people uh, the indigenous leaders on Sunday, saturday sorry signed a statement saying we should look at the role of racism and prejudice against indigenous people they said australians who voted no should reflect hard on that question well pointing this finger at dinosaurs dickheads and racists is the easy way out insulting and and demeaning the intelligence and moral standing makes it easy for voice crusaders to avoid the real questions. It means they'll not have to dwell on the uncomfortable truth that the result is a rejection of their entire vision of the world. It's a rejection of a vision in which indigenous people sit on a higher moral plane than the rest of us, who are forever having to grieve at the wrongs that have been committed against them and call for redress. That's no way towards reconciliation or towards a future for Australia. The City Morning Herald put it this way, devastating verdict, ran its headline, Australia tells First Nation people you are not special. That's not at all what we were saying. What we were saying is every human being, every citizen of the country is special, No, but no human being is more special than any other. It was a call for the end of the separatism that began under Gough Whitlam that was intended to give Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders better lives by giving back their traditional lands. But that hasn't worked. They've turned into welfare sinkholes, as we know, and the people they've been beaten down by the tyranny of low expectations. Every Indigenous citizen, every Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander should be able to exercise their full rights as citizens and live their lives to the full, changing their lives for better or ill. Stephen Javor, I'm very grateful you can join me on Battleground once again to uh, try and get to understand a little better the mood of our times, as it were. It's been a a, a very important month uh, in in two capacities, I think. One, the voice referendum, and secondly, the Hamas uh, atrocities in southern Israel, what they portend, and the reaction of the intelligentsia around the world, including here in Sydney. But let's, let's start perhaps with that side of things. Because it was shocking last week to me to see the knee-jerk support of young university radicals uh, in joining with people who looked like they had more nefarious aims on the steps of Parliament House, or, sorry, on the, on the steps of the Opera House, to Stand up and in solidarity with a murderous, brutal group of people who committed gross atrocities in southern Israel. It shocked me. Were you shocked?
1: Um, well, in some ways, shocked, yes, but but not surprised. Uh, we saw similar things uh, in nine during nine eleven. When, uh, you know, the, the, the day after 9-11, when news broke out, uh, certainly in Sydney, I grew up in Bankstown, a uh, very, very multicultural area, and there was celebration and dancing in the streets uh, around some of the, um, the, the densely Muslim, uh, Muslim uh, populated areas in that region of Sydney. You had similar things uh, in America and elsewhere. So uh, going back and of course, straight away. You had uh, intellectuals basically saying um, America had brought this on itself. And so it was really kind of a replay of what we saw 22 years ago with, um, uh, with the 9-11 um, um, terrorist attack. Mm-hmm. Well,
0: uh, thanks for reminding me about that, because I think it always pays to look back at, at uh, previous markers in history to realise that these are not, Uniquely bad times. It's always been challenging, but here's the thing, Stephen. I mean, you could compare it in a way with the the sort of hero quality that they gave Che Guevara, who was a you know cold-blooded revolutionary killer who thought that it, you know the more brutal you were to your you, the revolution's enemies, the more virtuous you were. Uh, you could compare it to the mid 1970s when the the intelligentsia were lockstep behind Paul Potney's murderous regime, you know, cracking open bottles of champagne in the common rooms when the, the Khmer Rouge marched into Phnom Penh. But here's the thing, there was at least a plausible excuse of ignorance in those cases, possibly not in 9-11, but certainly in the Khmer Rouge example. But today you've got young, young activists out there with all the evidence they need in their pocket. That an atrocity is being committed, and who committed it, and whose side we should be standing on, and yet there seems their their ability to filter out reality is just amazing.
1: Yeah, and I suppose we can probably distinguish between two two kinds of supporters of this. There are those who aren't necessarily university educated, but who are. Either directly from regions in the Middle East or their parents are directly from regions in the Middle East. And they have just imbibed, many have just imbibed a fierce anti Israel, uh, pro Hamas, pro Palestinian um, sentiment. And you saw a lot of those on the uh, sort of around the Opera House uh, the other day after this immediately happened and on the streets in Sydney, literally just celebrating the the, the video clips. Uh, all on Twitter for people to see. And then there's the other class of, of people whose first instinct is not so much to express support and grief for Israel, uh, but to express support and solidarity uh, with, with sort of uh, Palestine and, and quite frankly, many of the people who, who are celebrating uh, these attacks. And that is university students who you know, have nothing to do uh, with, with the Middle East themselves, but have for decades uh, been told by their university professors that Israel is the aggressor, uh, Palestine is the victim, and the existence of Hamas is just a, a natural um, expression of the legitimate grievances of Palestinians against Israel. In fact, l- literally just yesterday, I, I noticed that... Um, uh, the Professor of Linguistics, Nick Rima at Sydney University. Uh, he, he reposted a declaration from many Sydney University academics declaring that they will have nothing to do uh, with Israeli uh, conferences, Israeli academics. They won't invite Israeli academics over to give papers and things like that. And Nick Rima was posting on Twitter how delighted he was that in wake of the latest attacks against Israel uh, some Sydney University academics had 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 signed onto that document, and so what is the response of of of, of some academics in Australia? Uh, it's actually to reaffirm uh, their decision to have nothing to do uh, with Israeli intellectuals, and that mindset is something that has filtered down to students over years and years and years to to the point that universities uh, becoming places where sort of openly, um, uh, 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 students who are openly supportive of Israel uh, feel uh, quite unsafe. In fact, they've felt that way certainly for the last uh, few days. But this, this needs some
0: some very careful unpacking, Stephen, I'd suggest, you know, because this this is a perverse reaction in my view, uh, you know that, and and they attempt, for instance, to to justify this by saying that these were resistance. It was legitimate resistance against an invading force. Well, you know, resistance movements blow up bridges and ambush soldiers. Uh, they don't go around beheading babies. You know, the beheaders of babies are, are crazed, radicalised psychopaths with uh, completely no human feeling. Right. They're not resistance fighters. And the idea that they're they're trying to regain territory lost. Well, that's absurd, even if you take their assumption that all of Israel is part of Palestine. You know, if you if you're an army that you go in and you take a a town or a city or a kibbutz, the first thing you do is take out all the armed uh, combatants within that community. And then you secure the borders. You don't waste time, do not waste bullets shooting teenagers in deserts and and going carrying you know grandmothers and children back as booty to your homeland right so none of this fits but why does that idea persist that somehow the the Gazans, the palestinians are the victims and the israelis the oppressors
1: it's just become baked in to the left uh particularly since the 1970s since the yom kippur war of uh, 1973 uh so as, as you well know nick Uh, when the state of Israel um, is declared in 1948, the left and the so-called progressives are actually very supportive of it. Uh, It it was something that was seen as a great step forward for uh, the humane uh, treatment of Jewish people, obviously, particularly those coming out of Europe after World War II. It's really in the 1970s onwards that the left turns quite... Um, militantly against uh, Israel, particularly after the Yom Kippur War. Mm. And and, and why is this? Well, it's because in a sense, prior to the late 1960s, a a lot of the left was animated by more sort of humanitarian ideals, sort of universalism ideals, uh, the idea of sort of self-determination of of all peoples and things like that. But especially in the 60s and, and the 70s, Marxism increasingly dominates the left and, and just again sort of baked into the Marxist uh, certainly the, the neo-Marxist attitude towards Israel particularly from the 1970s is that Israel is really just a, a satellite of America uh, designed to oppress sort of the, its, its immediate neighbours and consequently uh, Israel itself is no more legitimate, for example, than, than American hegemony, than capitalism itself, and every, uh, every people group around Israel that has any kind of grievance against it is automatically in the right, is automatically a victim, is automatically oppressed, and, and Israel is the oppressor. So this sort of radical Marxist attitude to Israel since the nineteen seventies is just baked into the left now. It is just totally baked into the left, um, you know. And it's incredible when you when you read the Hamas charter. The Hamas charter. I mean, the left often talks about a two-state solution. But the Hamas charter is not a two-state solution charter. It is a Israel is completely illegitimate. And we are justified in resisting it and not even resisting it when it attacks us, resisting it by virtue of its very existence. That That is the Hamas Charter. It, it is a terrorist organization. It is a terroristic charter. And in, in a sense, the, the very mindset of this charter uh, is encouraged by the, sort of the radical leftist idea that the very existence of Israel is something that is oppressive and offensive.
0: Yeah, and, and just as we, we see the moral compass of today's radicalised left in this country, having been set and locked in by really faulty thinking of critical theory and so forth, so the moral compass, I guess, of anybody growing up in Gaza for the last 15 years, uh, 20 years, has been set by this uh, propaganda, which, you know, organisations like Palestinian Media Watch catalogue on a weekly basis, you know, the sort of tropes and, and stereotypes portrayed on children's TV programmes, for instance, in, in the Palestinian areas of, of, you know, monster Jews and, and uh, as oppressors, you know, it was the sort of stuff that is, is very similar to the kind of propaganda that you saw in Germany in the
1: 1930s and 40s oh you know, absolutely uh, it's amazing to think that sort of so many of so many so many of the sort of the university class protesters who you know would call their opponents nazis are the very ones who are loath really to condemn uh the actions of of Hamas and also of 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 more broadly of people who who literally are carrying out Nazi activities it, it, it really is incredible, but the, you know that that's simply where we are right now, and things are definitely going to get worse, Nick, because Israel is going to take full advantage of the fact that it has a strong uh, casus bellum it, it's It's got global support right now. And it will go in very soon and attempt to completely destroy Hamas. And while that is going on, Hamas will be publishing its own propaganda videos of any excesses committed by uh, Israeli military troops and its own propaganda videos of of itself torturing and killing Israeli hostages. And all of this is going to generate a... Probably a conflagration of of uprisings, not just in the Middle East. I think more likely actually in Europe, as countries with large Muslim minorities are going to experience terrorist attacks over the coming uh, weeks and months. Um, and, and that is what that is what we're in for. Uh, for the yeah, I mean,
0: you, you you say Israel will take full advantage. I mean, I think I. I'd say that Israel has no, no choice uh, but to correct, yeah, but, but to correct in a sense what's been, in a sense, the naivety of the last uh, 15 years, which was to assume that you know, Hamas was a kleptocracy that was run by corrupt individuals who wanted to keep a permanent state of conflict in place for the sole reason of enriching themselves. So that's not, obviously not so. We should have taken their rhetoric more seriously when they talked about wiping Jews off the face of the earth, that's exactly what they're planning to do, right? Yeah. And and it will be interpreted not just by friends of the Palestinians, but by the world's media as, as Israel's aggression, no doubt. I mean, I watched Al Jazeera's coverage uh, on the Tuesday following the massacres on the Saturday, so four days after the massacres, and the details of the massacres were still coming out. You know, the horrible discovery of beheaded babies and so forth in that kibbutz. But Al Jazeera headline was the number of Palestinians have been killed, pictures uh, taken outside of a, a Palestinian hospital, you know, quite moving pictures on the face of it, although we know the capacity of the Palestinians to, uh, to create fake images, but this looked genuine. That was their entire focus. And that's just four days after the, the, the atrocity. So, I think you're right. Things can only deteriorate from here.
1: Well, that's true, and we'll we'll get used to more of it, because what we'll find that the Hamas will do is they'll use their own people as human shields, and there's nothing unusual about this in terms of aggressors towards Israel. Uh, They will will store military equipment and weapons in, in mosques. They will launch missiles from residential areas. They will launch missiles next door to... Childcare centres, and Israel will have no choice but to retaliate, and there will be necessarily um, to use uh, the the the, uh, the euphemism "collateral damage." There will be innocent civilian deaths, and that is all totally deliberate and engineered by Hamas to generate global condemnation of Israel uh, to try to sort of cool the hand of the Israeli government in going in and completely destroying Hamas. I don't think this time it's going to work, um, but that that will be the tactic. Using Hamas will not hesitate for one second to use its own people as human shields.
0: Let's go back to this puzzling, well, I still find difficult to comprehend reaction of the intelligentsia uh, in much of the West and indeed here in Australia. It, it does show the- you know, I and mean, all of us are prone to confirmation bias, right? This is where you 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 search out confirming information and discount anything that seems discordant with your fixed view all of us do that from time to time it makes us slow to recognize what's happening in front of our eyes but but this is in a different order it seems to me uh, you know it it comes to almost i think i think the way to understand it for me is to go to thomas soul and his vision of the anointed you know this is a fixed vision of the world they have it's not subject to empirical um disproval you know or it's not tested it's just assumed that the world is like this and and that's the world i think that a lot of this current generation find themselves in fixed ideas as we said about victims and oppressors and uh that will never change
1: yeah i mean i mean you you're right and this functions i mean the whole arab israeli conflict f- functions for for many in in the left as a kind of as a kind of source of meaning in in their lives it's 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 more than just a matter of cool-headed analysis it's something that that sort of being on the side of liberating the palestinians is something that just gives them a kind of existential meaning and it's yeah. it's it shouldn't be an, an accident that it starts to arise very fiercely uh from sort of the the, the 70s onwards because you know, prior to that, the the sort of the 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 object of many in the left w- was um, was the Soviet Union, but as the atrocities of the Soviet Union started to become increasingly uncovered, uh, particularly as you obviously in the, in in the 60s, sort of just. In, invading uh, European countries with no cause whatsoever, it became fairly obvious that the Soviet Union was not the cause that they wanted to get embroiled in. And so in a sense, they took all of that existential need for for meaning, and they then just started pouring it onto the Palestinian people. And so there's a sense in which there's been a migration of the allegiance that, that many in the left once had to the Soviet Union and, and also to other sort of communistic regimes in Asia, when those proved to be totally inhumane, they just, that, that sort of allegiance, that, that meaning migrated over to Palestine and to the, uh, the Arab-Israeli conflict more generally. And so that is really what, what's going on.
0: Well, as a segue to the second half of our conversation about the referendum on The Voice, there's been this definition of Palestinians, which I think is fairly recent origin, the definition of them as First Nations people, as indigenous people, as descendants of nomadic Bedouin tribes who, who roamed that area since biblical times. Uh, Now, this is now endorsed by the United Nations. They are officially considered uh, a First Nations people, as we're now obliged to call it, alongside um, Aboriginal people. That, that, of course, I I don't think we need to to explain why, but that that claim for First Nationhood, if you like, is is highly contestable in that part of the world, given the 6,000 years of of recorded history of, of the Jews in that region which is, uh, you know, corroborated, the biblical evidence corroborated by archaeological evidence is very firm in that regard. But um, I suppose this throws up for me the whole dangers, this whole idea of in, 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 indigenous people having some prime, prime more a more genuine claim to a country than those who've come later, right? Because there are all sorts of problems with that narrative, but the the most important, I think, and this comes out in Israel and through the Palestinians, is is that it it is the it is the pursuance of of historical grievances, of things half imagined, uh, in which you you visit the sins of the father upon upon their their children. Now, that's just no way to arrive at a peaceful settlement to whatever
1: arguments we've got between us, is it? No, it's not, because what, what historical grievance does and what, what it basically does is it, complete, is it completely clouds judgment uh, in terms of what is most likely to bring about a, a, a workable, sustainable, sort of prosperous state of affairs for a, a minority people. And you've very much got it in Australia right now um, that there is this movement in Australia. And and in some respects, it's embodied in the Uluru Statement from the Heart that the the, the only legitimate arrangement between um, uh, indigenous and non-indigenous peoples is is, is essentially for indigenous peoples to, to have their sovereignty back. I mean, even the term sovereignty is, is very much a, a sort of a modern Western term. Uh, and so one of the ironies of, of certainly sort of the indigenous sovereignty movement is that it's actually not an expression of sort of traditional I- indigenous thinking and indigenous culture. It's actually an appropriation of Western, dare I say, colonial uh, thought <laughs> Um, and, and sort of self self imposing it on its own movement, and the danger of it is is that the obvious question to ask is well, if indigenous Australians were given their own sovereign territory, um, what would life be like? Would life be good because presumably if it 's a sovereign territory it wouldn 't be funded by uh the non indigenous non-Indigenous Australia, because that in itself is almost an incursion into their sovereignty. Um, You can't really be sovereign when you're almost entirely funded by an external state. (laughs) And so presumably it would be uh, self-funded, it would be according to its own laws. Now, anyone would ask the question, okay, what what would that economic situation be like? well, what's the economic situation like right now in, in sort of uh, regions with large Indigenous minorities? Well, it's not great. Uh, but that doesn't matter to many of the people who sort of push this sovereignty of First Nations line. It doesn't matter because the important thing for them is sort of rectifying some kind of historic injustice. And I don't think anyone denies the existence of historical injustice. But when you make it everything... Then it clouds out the very important questions that you know will that need to be answered in terms of whether the pursuit of this ideal of First Nations sovereignty will actually be to the benefit of, of of Indigenous peoples. I refuse to use the term First Nations peoples, by the way, Nick. Uh, whether it be to the benefit of Indigenous peoples. Or whether it will be to their detriment. I think anyone who thinks about it critically can see it would be greatly to their detriment, uh, but that doesn't matter from the ideological point of view. The, the only thing that matters is, um, is the historical injustice sort of rectified, as though historical ju- injustice can ever be rectified.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I'll, look, I'm with you on this, the First Nations people Question and, and and use it. I pretend to use it only in the ironic sense, but but there's two there's two things to unpack there. Sovereignty. I think we need to talk about that, but let's come to that in a moment. First of all, this this pursuit of historical grievances and where that leads. Uh, it strikes me, Stephen, that that is very very much the opposite of what the Judeo Christian Judeo Christian uh, philosophy leads us towards which is the idea of forgiveness. It is the idea that uh, you take your sins with you to the grave that 's it they don 't you don 't get inherited by your your children and you 're judged for them at that point so that 's the point at which those those imagined misdeeds uh, are off the books but if if you don 't follow and th- then if you follow this through and say well in the case of reparations if we ever got to that point if if today's rep, uh, australian taxpayers had to pay reparations to today's uh, people of uh, who claim indigenous status uh, as 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 a somehow uh, repaying some debt that goes back to 1788 well clearly that's problematic i mean why should a, a baby born today ha- have that immediate outstanding debt against somebody who who didn't suffer any necessarily any directly any trauma why should a you know a migrant coming from say Afghanistan be forced to pay that you know I I think it it quickly comes to me that 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 is not a good way to settle our differences and that the Christian message the Christian logic is much better to follow whether or not you you believe in God
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I mean, sort of, sort of. The, the Christian approach to reconciliation does not rule out uh, the need to confess one's wrongdoing and the need for one to try to um, make up for what they've done. But what it does point out is that without forgiveness, there will be no reconciliation. And this is actually really important because. Um, I mean, there are a couple of there are a couple of things that are important about this. You're absolutely right. You know, biblically speaking, uh, guilt for sins does not pass down from parents to children. It does not pass down from generation to generation.
0: Even even in the Old Testament, even in the Old Testament, Stephen, which could
1: be pretty brutal on some of these points. <laughs> oh, that, that's right. I mean, it, it explicitly says in the Book of Ezekiel that the, the, the guilt of the parents is not is not passed down to the children. Um, That is not how uh, modern identity politics sees things. Uh, It essentially sees uh, modern uh, non-Indigenous peoples as culpable for the deeds done by um, their ancestors. Now, there are so many problems with that. Uh, For example, Indians in Australia are non-Indigenous peoples. Uh, are they culpable for what was done uh, 80, 90, 200 years ago? I mean, that doesn't make sense. Um, now, then what, what happens is then it says, well, okay, not so much uh, Indian people or, or Asian people, okay, Anglo people. So the problem with that, though, is it's hard to think of one prominent indigenous activist who buys into this identity politics who doesn't actually have an Anglo surname. <laughs> I, I, it's hard <laughs> to think of one. And what that means is that they themselves are partly culpable for what has what befell uh, indigenous Australians, so they themselves are, are guilty of it. The, the whole approach is utterly confused and, and totally counterproductive but but the other the other the other thing is you can never fully make up for. Misdeeds of the past, particularly when they're misdeeds that, that 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 are sort of crimes against humanity, and again, no one, no historian, conservative or otherwise, would deny that there were crimes against humanity committed in Australia by settlers. No one denies that. Um, what we would deny is that they were unique in Australia. That, that these are things that characterise human history, and in fact, in m- many other instances of colonisation, colonization, they were much, much worse. But any attempt to try to sort of rectify all of that today is doomed to failure. You cannot. You cannot do it. And consequently, that's why forgiveness is important, because without forgiveness, Indigenous activists and Indigenous Australians will constantly be demanding something that can never be met. And that is not a that is not a recipe for harmony that is a recipe for conflict and sort of warfare and so you know and that's where in a sense where we're where we're kind of at uh these days there, there, there was another there's another problem for me
0: too uh, um you know we've spoken before about the erosion of citizenship and this sort of retribalization um thing that victor. Davis Hanson um, has covered so well in his book, The Dying Citizen. But look, um, there's another side to the erosion of citizenship, and that is the the sort of when people stop becoming proud of their country, when they stop being able to sort of say, well, this is a good country. I'm here and I'm, I'm aligned to it because it's a good place. Right? And we used to be, well, we do say that about Australia, but that's being slowly undermined by this, Identity politics, First Nations, ironic use of the word, uh, kind of philosophy, not least in the words of the prime minister, you know, who in before the referendum, he used phrases like it will help lift the burden of colonialism from us or it'll help us feel better about our country. Yeah, he's implicitly telling people that this is not a good country. It's a bad country. And he's fallen for that mistake of characterizing a country by the worst things it does it's not right to, to you should never judge a person by the worst things he's ever done in his or her life right I mean I, I I'm guilty I I joined the Labour Party at the age British Labour Party at the age of 18 but I don't want to be judged by it
1: you never told me this Nick uh this interview's <laughs> over <laughs> no, well, well particu- particularly, look, Nick, particularly- Well, the thing is, Stephen, Stephen it, would, it would be
0: over if you follow today's moral compass, right? And say that if somebody's done one bad thing in their life, I cannot speak
1: to them again. Yep, true, true. And, and it's particularly bad when, you know, it's a country like Australia that has had um, a national apology. That, comm- that commemorates the bad things done every year. Uh, it's it's not as though there have not been huge gestures of regret uh, in this country. Uh, now, children are being taught that uh, uh, yeah, Australia, yeah, that, that Australia um, has been a, a, a sort of terrible country, and I, I get I get um, pa- parents with young children telling me that their children. Uh, are really upset because they are told that sort of, you know, white people killed the Aborigines and, and, and the children... I've literally been told this by parents of children in primary schools and the children look to their parents and say, did we kill the Aborigines? And the, 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 the child is, is sort of old enough to sort of understand the worst aspects of, of what is being said, but not old enough to sort of understand um you know, a more subtle view of sort of well, you know pe- pe- people uh a long long time ago uh killed aboriginal australians but but we're not guilty for that today uh they're being they're being upset and even sort of mildly traumatized um, by these messages and look at the end of the day nick the actual victim of all of this is going to be indigenous australians it's not going to be it's not going to be um, non-Indigenous Australians because what these excesses will do is that they will just generate a, a an indifference and even a hostility to sort of the genuine plight of Indigenous Australians who are doing it bad. When, when you keep pummeling people with historical guilt, it's just going to it, – it'll, it, it'll generate some uh, people who have tremendous sympathy for Indigenous Australians but won't actually – Do much to help them and it will generate people who have immense who who will sort of have an immense cynicism against anything that could be done for indigenous Australians because they are just sick of being guilt tripped so 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 this this campaign of national guilt uh is is not going to help anyone and it's certainly not going to help indigenous Australians And, and we look we saw we saw the fruits of this Nick uh last weekend when the voice to parliament was voted down Uh, Australians have been pummeled with guilt trips now for decades, and the fruits of it are that this voice to parliament got very little sympathy among Australians, and it went down. Uh, When will the left learn that Australians do not respond well to just being guilt tripped, to being called racists? to being to be called just colonialists and things like that, uh, maybe this the, the feat of this voice to Parliament will be something of a wake-up call. Probably not. Well, it's it it, it is uh,
0: just on reading the result, it is a massive blow to the anointed and their vision yeah. because this this is not. Uh, just the rejection of one technical amendment to the Constitution. It doesn't have that. That's certainly not that. It, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a mandate to abolish, a, a very substantial mandate to abolish all of this nonsense that says that Australia, we can't celebrate Australia Day, that, uh, you know, we must look at Indigenous people as victims rather than as individuals who may need some help because they can't help themselves. But that's not Help that we give them because of they are a class of people, it's because we give it to the individuals. Um, you know the whole the whole range of arguments that that are made that have been unchallenged basically in, in public, that I think come crashing down. Uh, or popular support is very much against them, as illustrated by this result. But you and I know, of course, that the anointed will not read it that way. Uh, they may at best see it as a defeat of one technical amendments and they will blame others they will blame Peter Dutton they will blame misinformation they will blame the Murdoch press they'll blame uh, Anthony Albanese probably for not having run a proper campaign if he'd run a proper campaign it would have got up instead of looking as they should and reviewing their whole vision and saying well
1: maybe we weren't so smart after all Oh, absolutely! In fact, they they were blaming all they were blaming all those people and and using all those excuses uh, before the referendum actually happened, because uh, they could see in the last few weeks that it was doomed. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, we we know why this referendum didn't get up, and and I think it, look, in, in all honesty, Nick, and, I, and I've been saying this for months. I, I was saying it a year ago. This referendum was never going to get up. It was, from the very beginning, a, a, a great misreading of Australians to think that they would vote for something uh, this, 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 this radical um, regarding uh, in, in Indigenous Australia. We, we forget that in 1999, the majority of Australians... Uh, Over 60% of Australians voted against just including a reference to Indigenous Australians in the preamble. And that was nowhere near as radical as what this voice is. Now, the amazing thing is that even Victoria and Canberra, two of the most leftist areas in Australia, they voted against bringing a reference to Indigenous Australians into the preamble as well. It was universally rejected and so thinking that this voice this change to the constitution was ever going to get up was incredibly naive but they were naive when you read the karma report it actually explicitly says that non-indigenous support for this voice in australia is overwhelming that it's overwhelming now why did they think that well because all of the written submissions that they got in supporting a voice to parliament in the karma report Almost all of them, literally 90 to 95% of them, were from non-Indigenous people. And so stupidly, they just assumed that non-Indigenous Australians would be really supportive of this. So they made all these rookie errors uh, very early on, thinking that this would have much more support than it actually would have. But of course, Nick, you know and I know that once Australians started to actually become informed about the Uluru Statement from the Heart, about the voice... Once they started hearing what advocates of The Voice like Tila Reed and Thomas Mayo and Marsha Langton had been saying um, in sort of leading up to the campaign about reparations, about treaties and things and just Australians being racist and stupid and things like that, Australians naturally and very predictively turned against it. The other thing that I think needs to be called out about the, less, the Yes campaign, and I actually think this is the most... I, 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 I'm close to using the word despicable here, but certainly um, uh, go ahead, use it. <laughs> despicable. I, I will use it because, in all seriousness, the Yes campaign was saying all along, "This is what Indigenous, this is what you know, the overwhelming number of Indigenous Australians want. We need to hear their voices." The Yes campaign, from the beginning of the campaign, in, in basically in January 2023, up until the end, kept using the figure. of Indigenous Australians want this. 80% of Indigenous Australians want this. It was everywhere. It was ubiquitous. The only thing is they got that 80% figure from a survey of 300 Indigenous Australians in January, and then they kept running that number all through the year without really bothering beyond March to survey them. And anyone who was thinking a little more deeply about this was asking, wait a second, why aren't you surveying Indigenous opinion to see if it's changing along with non-Indigenous opinion? Everyone was saying it's eighty percent. It's eighty percent, mm. assuming that Indigenous Australians are no more capable of changing their mind on things than non-Indigenous Australians. It was sheer propaganda. And what we discovered mm. on the eve of the of the um, on the eve of the actual referendum was that, in fact, Indigenous opinion had changed. And it had declined quite significantly. So the Age published a poll showing that Indigenous support was around about 59%. The Financial financial Review uh, published a poll taken by the UK poll group, um, Focal Data, which surveyed Australia and broke the results up into electorates. And so what the financial review did, it it looked at the results in the electorates with the highest numbers of Indigenous minorities and found that in Australian electorates, federal electorates, with the highest number of Indigenous minorities, the no vote was ahead in all of them. Um, And so while Indigenous opinion on The Voice was declining over the course of the year, just like non-Indigenous opinion was, the yes case continued to push that figure of eighty percent, which it gathered in January, it never cared about what indigenous Australians thought of this voice it it, it, it got its eighty percent figure early on before the national debate really started and just ran with it regardless of what indigenous Australians thought and I thought that was just a disgusting thing that they did that that was disinformation
0: well you can see see where they went wrong uh, early on they had a sort of a constitutional convention I guess you'd call it at Uluru but it was only people who were all of one mind Um, and and so you've got groupthink very early on uh, and they didn't want to dispel this I mean we know the phenomena of groupthink where you get people together in a room and everybody pats one another on the back and says what a brilliant idea Uh, and then when things go horribly wrong they say why didn't I raise an objection, but that's what happens. Uh, and, and, the t- and so what, that's why you need a constitutional convention. That's why you need to allow every voice to be heard. And yet, of course, right from the get go, anybody who raised dissent against this idea was, was racist or stupid, right? They're a, a dickhead or a dinosaur, you know. <laughs> so they, that that was that was the approach from day one, you know. That, that somehow Warren Mundine and, and Jacinta Price as as, as uh, Johannes leap portrayed, uh, portrayed them in a cartoon were considered to be white supremacists, you know. It's absurd, but that's that they, they, But they're going to my point, I guess, Stephen is they're going to keep making these mistakes. And and this won't be the last of them, nor indeed the worst.
1: Oh, absolutely! I mean, the 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 the, the left in Australia has always been its own worst enemy. And if the voice was the Titanic, uh, it was people like uh, Taylor Reeds, and Thomas uh, um, uh, Thomas Calmers, and. Um, uh, Philip Adams and Victoria Fieldings and all the most vocal and obnoxious defenders of the voice, they were the iceberg. They were the iceberg. Um, they sabotaged the campaign. I
0: always always love a good Titanic metaphor in this situation. Or perhaps they were the ones on the bridge calling out to the engine room to step up the engines. <laughs> But they were the architects of this thing, you're dead right. But look, let's just cross to the the other side, the people on the other side of this argument, the no camp or, uh, I guess, uh, constitutional conservatives who take things cautiously. They're not used to having many wins. I can't remember when they last had a win as big as this one in defeating The Voice. Uh, it's, It's a feeling that they're clearly not used to. But... And, and as a result of that, I, I worry that we, they won't now push forward and use this as the opportunity to reform the, our settings, you know, change the settings towards Aboriginal policy, which are completely wrong and completely uh, anti-unproductive. So, for instance, we could talk about land rights. We could talk about awarding land rights communally, and how that's land rights without having any land rights. You need individual property rights if people are to flourish. We can talk about the Aboriginal corporations. We can talk about the whole idea of separatism or separate development, which is, which has been where we've the track we've been locked on locked into since Gough Whitlam's time. All those are big things that need correcting. Is there any hope that that people on the centre right or sensible minded people will take this opportunity and fix those? I think those there
1: things? could be because it's actually a great opportunity for for Dutton to really start pushing that alternative perspective. I mean, everyone's talking about the issues right now, and and now that The Voice has been defeated, you know, people are saying, okay, what now? What now? Because the advocates of The Voice always said, if this voice doesn't get up, it's hopeless. Everything's hopeless. That's what the Uluru Statement from the Heart said, which is a, a shocking message actually to send to Indigenous Australians. But so now is actually a fantastic opportunity uh, for, the Liberal, for the Liberal Party to basically say, right, you know, our opposition to the voice was not opposition to the Indigenous Australians who were doing badly. Uh, our opposition to it was to something that was going to be a distraction, even a hindrance to helping them. So let's start a, a, a new uh, process of discussing what has been impossible to discuss up until now because it's been so controversial and anyone who raises is just being called a racist. Well, it's all out in the open now. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about auditing uh, the Aboriginal industry. Let's talk about looking at some things that need to be changed. Uh, yeah, for example, like opening up more Indigenous uh, service provisions to non-Indigenous service providers, like allowing more competition in that space and and there also just needs to be a whole paradigm shift about how we think about the problems in the worst affected indigenous communities we've been taught to think about them as either caused by the government or problems that can only be solved by the government and it's precisely that way of thinking which hinders any any progress being made so it's actually a fantastic opportunity for the liberal party to offer something far more effective, far more realistic, and I think far more positive uh, in terms of uh, being able to figure out what's going wrong in those regions where Indigenous Australians are, are worst affected, and over time uh, make some meaningful changes to policy and how many of these service provision and representative Uh, Indigenous representative organisations are actually being run. There there needs to be some accountability. You would never get that from Labour, and you would never get that from the voice to Parliament, but you could get it from the Liberal Party if Peter Dutton uh, has the the will to do it. And I'm sure he does want to do it. Well, Stephen, we've run out of time, which is probably a good
0: idea because you've just on an optimistic note, a, a redemptive note to this conversation, uh, which we wouldn't want to destroy by to talk about it further. But thank you very much for covering uh, this ground uh, so helpfully. I've, I've learned a lot from our conversation. Always and a pleasure I look forward to talk you. to you again soon on Battleground.